Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network. We are... Ellis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College. Our guests for this edition are Lynn Chancer and John Andrews, co-editors of The Unhappy Divorce of Sociology and Psychoanalysis. It's a new book from Palgrave Macmillan. Lynn is Professor of Sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of City University of New York. John is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Williams College. The Unhappy Divorce is an edited volume. Neil Schmelzer, Nancy Chodoro, George Steinmetz, and Jeffrey Prager are among the authors of its 18 chapters. We are very pleased to have Lynn and John with us for the next 50 minutes or so. Lynn will be leaving us in about 30 minutes for another commitment. Welcome, Lynn, John, and listeners to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you. Lynn and John, the word divorce in your title implies that sociology and psychoanalysis were once married. Some listeners might be surprised. Some might ask, when did sociology ever have anything to do with psychoanalysis? In the first chapter, the authors George Cavalletto and Catherine Silver answer that question with some surprising data. Would you summarize for us what they found? Well, I could start. Um, uh, John and and, and maybe John will pick up, but um, George and Catherine did extensive archival research into the history of ASR and AJS. And what's very interesting and often forgotten is that um, a, a finding that they they show actually um, graphically and quantitatively is that a rather surprising number of articles um, uh, in AJS and ASR were about psychoanalysis. Could I, could I just interject that ASR <laughs> is the American Review of Sociology, AJS is the American, the American Journal, Journal of Sociology, Sociology. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The other one's the American Sociological Review. Those are the main established, long-term historical, um, 
journals of the discipline that are sort of taken as um, like if you were studying the the mainstream of the discipline, you might look at those two journals. Sure. And in the 40s and 50s, reflecting Talcott Parsons' influence at that time, who was a trained psychoanalyst as well as a sociologist, yep. um, there were George and Catherine found a surprisingly large number of articles about psychoanalysis and sociology, and they tended to go up in number uh, for a number of years and then started to decline again. John, would you want to add to that? Yeah, and you know, they. I think Lynn is right to say that that trend reflects the influence of Parsons um, in the field, and uh, particularly. Uh, Freud's um, influence on his theory of the personality system as, um, you know, the, the super ego, you know, keeping individuals in check with um, a conscience uh, was something that Parsons borrowed uh, really from Freud. Um, but they... I, the decline that, that happened in the 60s and 70s, um, I think, uh, reflected um, the unfashionableness, I guess, of structural functionalism um, toward other sort of uh, paradigms. Let's go back. Uh, we want to come back to that, of course. Um, that's kind of the, the core uh, material in your book. But let's go back for a minute, if we can, um, back a little further in history. Uh, when sociology and psychoanalysis came together, what, when was that and what were the circumstances that brought them together in the first place? Um, I would say that, you know, the, the, the spike um, happened you know, post-war, which was also when, you know, a lot of analysts were immigrating to the United States. So, uh, you know, there's, there's that, the actual immigration of people. Um, but there was also a, an initial surge of interest between about 1912 and about 1925, there was, mm -hmm. a, there was a kind of a spike there, too. Yeah, and I, that follows Freud's first visit to the United States in, I think, what, 1906, 1905? I think that's mm -hmm. right, yeah. So, um, and, you know, he presented his theory of infantile sexuality, which was very controversial. So I think it was just in... Um, academic discourse, whether positively or negatively, um, people were talking about it. Um, but and I also think, I mean, toward the end, I mean, it, high school students and college students often read Freud's Civilization and its Discontents, which, sure. of course, is trying in some way to um, bring together um, the social and the psychoanalytic, but over the problem of war. So yeah. maybe the, the years you're you're referring to after World War One, when 1914, and then Freud starts to turn to a little bit of writing about um, society and psychoanalysis because of the incredible devastation of World War One, um, yeah. and it's interesting perhaps that another spike of interest occurs 
after World War II mm. and were part of what Parsons is influenced by, but never, in my opinion, unfortunately, comes to the United States all that much, but in some ways it does, is the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School sure. writers who do land in New York and become part of the new school, but their, um, their interest in how to put Marx and Freud together was spurred by the rise of Nazism. So perhaps um, huge social disasters raise um, a, a sense of we need more than just sociology. Um, we have to understand the psyche in order to see um, what's going on in the world. And particularly aggressive tendencies, you know, that Freud attributes to the death drive. Right. And, and comes up with a death drive for the first time after the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems that um, psychoanalysis and, and, and sociology coming together was at its peak right around the 1950s. Why exactly hmm. was that? Is that just a kind of reaction to World War II? Um what, what exactly was psychoanalysis offering American sociology at the time that it wasn't finding elsewhere? Well, I think John started to discuss that in, in talking about um, Parsons writing the social system, um, drawing on his own psychoanalytic uh, training as a psychoanalyst. So there was a sense of seeing sociology from Parsons, but also from the Frankfurt School, which, of course, Parsons knew of, um, as needing to engage with how the psyche and how the social interrelate in some way. For Parsons, um, feminists would later criticize him in terms of how he does that um, in, in the social system, but there still is this interest in psychoanalysis that it, in Parsons' time was not seen, fascinatingly, as um, necessarily um, divorceable from sociology. And so that your reference to a, a quote-unquote marriage prior to a divorce is that there was more of an understanding, theoretically, of how, how can you understand the social if you don't understand the psyche, in that um, period, with Parsons as maybe um, the more mainstream sociological figure bringing that about, but then also the Frankfurt School's influence doing that too. So, you know, if in part psychoanalysis is riding on kind of part Parsonian coattails in the 1950s, then how, um, what happens in the 60s and 70s when you have um, uh, the Frankfurt School kind of coming more into vogue? Uh, the journal that it now called Critical Sociology used to be called the uh, Insurgent Sociologist, uh, no. emerging and really kind of displacing um, the Freudian presence in American sociology. How does that transition happen? Yeah, well, it, I mean, interesting um, because it happens in numerous ways. It, it seems to me in, yeah. in George and Catherine's. Um, piece, what happens in George and Catherine's article, is they trace the rise and, and fall and sort of show, I think in 1953, they look at particular articles in AJS and ASR that begin to attack the psychoanalytic. And the attacks on the psychoanalytic are 
um, about that it's not scientific enough. It's not falsifiable. It's not following a, um, a scientific method. So there's attacks on the, actually in George and Catherine's piece, the inability to operationalize, quote unquote, um, what you're studying when you're dealing with psychoanalysis. So one form of attack comes right within AJS and ASR because of the um, influence of science and the rise of a certain kind of American positivism. So that's one thing that happens. Well, it, but then it's, it seems, you know, that there's a, just, if I could just make this one point, that there's something that also happens in the 60s that you have Goffman symbolic interactionism coming into vogue. Hmm. Um, and there is an attack, a sense, and the rise slowly into the 60s and 70s of feminism, identity politics, and there's a sense of Freud as conservative. Freud starts to be seen as part uh, and labeled, and actually Parsons too in sociology, but as uh, have it being essentialistic, um, not taking into account the fluidity of, um, uh, of identity, that there's something... Um, Politically, there's a political rebellion against Freud and a particular ego psychology, more conservative reading of Freud. So that's the second thing that happens, like the that's rise of positivism and then also the rise of anti-institutional Goffmanian 60s um, belief that there's something essentialistic about the Freudian um, legacy. It's really interesting because, you know, then what seems to be happening is that psychoanalysis first is attacked uh, from uh, the conservative flank uh, as not yeah. being kind of scientific enough. And, exactly. um, and then suddenly it gets also attacked in the 60s and 70s from the, the liberal flank. I have to say exactly. I, that that's fascinating. Uh, one of the things that really struck me in that um, uh, early piece by uh, Catherine Silver was the quotes that she was able to pull out of some of these articles, the vitriol yeah. in yeah. those. If I could just read one of them, it just struck sure. me. Um, one of the articles that they quote from says um, the following. One of the more persistent weeds in the social science garden is Freudianism. Yeah. It is an adaptable plant thriving without factual <laughs> nourishment that returns season after season in one or another of its apparently infinite variations. Many have tried to hoe it out. Many have tried to smother it with the preponderance of contrary evidence, and some have endeavored to kill it with poisonous words. But so far, the species has survived, and at the moment, it is again flourishing at the expense of more useful and productive co- constructs. That, uh, you know, that kind of language, I thought, you know, was res- reserved in uh, the modern news cycle for terrorist organizations. <laughs> so to see it in a, in a mainstream sociological journal in the 50s was just a kind of amazing yeah. Yeah, anti-psychoanalytical yeah. uh, propaganda right. almost. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I, I think we also have to recognize the the sort of institutional uh, forces that were happening in the '50s when uh, you know sociology was really trying to establish itself, like Lynn said, as scientific, but also to receive um, university monies. And psychoanalysis mm. was doing the same thing in a different arena, really more in the therapeutic. So. Um, can you can you say more about that? I mean, I think in some ways that's really the the kernel of the of the matter. You know, funding. Um, maybe maybe you even know some things that you could say that are that are not in the book. Well, what kind of funding are we talking about? Who 
who with what funds are pulling strings, right? And what well, constitutes the institutional strings there yeah. that you're talking about? Can you say more about that? I, you know, George and Catherine really are the, the experts here. So what I'm kind of speculating to some extent, but I think the funds that we're talking about are, you know, from universities establishing a sociology separate from anthropology, separate from economics, that um, it, by separating itself from those other disciplines, including psychoanalysis, um, it could legitimate itself as a, as a unique kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, there must have been some fierce committee battles within the ASA over some of these things. No? Uh, questions maybe over, over control of journals, editing of journals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we have any? Yeah, have like any who was editing the journals, etc. But but I think yeah. what you're trying to get at, and there's probably other people um, who can answer this question better. I'm, I'm thinking of Kelly Moore, who's at Loyola University in Chicago, who um, studies sociology of science. But mm. when you look at when you know, how and who is controlling grants, um, the rise of uh, scientific research being funded by corporations, by government, uh, different government agencies. And so, I mean, psychoanalysis just doesn't fit into that scientific agenda mm-hmm. in the way that it is being funded. And there, it's also, um, to this day, I mean, we're not, we haven't yet talked about the present, but um, what's interesting about the beginning of the book is it charts the rise and fall, or quote-unquote marriage and quote-unquote divorce, which John and I just use those phrases mm-hmm. metaphorically, but it's um, something happens where it starts to become marginalized with mm-hmm. the rise of science, more funding over science, and, and various people up through even Pierre Bourdieu, who's written about here also, seeing social uh, sociology as a quote-unquote science, following scientific methods, and it's not clear where Freud fits into that. So to, to this day, one of the reasons um, I think um, the Freudian method and theory is still seen as on the outside of sociology is that it's not clear how that fits in methodologically mm. with how you do research. Um, so it, it, it raises all kinds of long-term questions, but I think this change was starting with was correlated with the rise of a scientific method within Mm -hmm. sociology. I just want to remind listeners that we're talking to Lynn Chancer and John Andrews, who are co-editors of the new book, The Unhappy Divorce of Sociology and Psychoanalysis. It's a new book out from Paul Grave Macmillan. And Lynn is going to have to leave us in a few minutes for another commitment. And I want to make sure uh, to ask her a couple of questions uh, out of her chapter in the book. Lynn, you tell the story of the divorce, the divorce between sociology and psychoanalysis, through the biographies of some American sociologists whose careers were lived through the years when the divorce occurred. Mm. Your chapter is entitled C. Wright Mills, Freud, and the Psychosocial Imagination. Mm. 
In your chapter, you remarked on Mill's ambivalence towards Freud. Mm. Could you describe that ambivalence for us and listeners? And then sure. maybe turning Mills on Mills, tell us what you find in Mills' personal biography that might explain that ambivalence toward Freud. Hmm. Well, um, it, it seems at, at the time intellectually, um, it, it, it's interesting to me that Mills could have been but does not seem to have been as influenced by the Frankfurt School as one might think. You had he was in New York at Columbia. There were um, the Frankfurt School right downtown at the right. New School. But he goes more in the direction of the Columbia Department, the development through Merton of middle range theory. Um, he's certainly influenced by um, other figures uh, at Columbia, even though later in Mill's life he goes in a very much Marxist direction. But in, in the milieu of Columbia sociology that he was in, um, Freud was certainly, I mean, that was part of parcel of the divorce that was occurring, um, quote unquote. And um, so Mill's, I think, um, but but on the other hand, what's very important about Mills is Mills is is writes the sociological imagination, and Mills has this famous quote that every sociology student, undergraduate, and graduate comes to know about um, uh, private troubles and um, putting together biography and the social. Exactly. And so somewhere Mills knows that you can't just get rid of the level of the individual agent um, in dealing with the structural. So he writes with Girth and Mills um, about how to put together um, uh, the the famous Girth and Mills volume where he's looking at character structure. Um, But what happens in that attempt by Mills to develop a social psychology because that Girth and Mills volume, I think, was his main um, work in trying to do that is my reading um, is that well, it's not really even so much of a reading. When you look for mentions of Freud, there's maybe two in the entire volume. Hmm. It mostly starts to develop a tripartite mind, self, and society model that's very reminiscent of Mead, and I think is um, inaugurating in in the 50s and 60s through the present a preference ongoing preference for symbolic interactionism as a framework to understand the individual in relation to the social more than the Freudian. So that seems to happen. But then when you your question about turning Mills um, against Mills, um, I, I argue also that one of the one thing that might have made um, the Freudian uh, uh, Freudian theory, Freudian method, alien to um, sociologists is is that Mills dies before the rise of feminism occurs, and the rise of feminist theory begins to from another in very very important angle, i.e., gender. Um, and the bifurcation between socialized femininity and masculinity suddenly asks, well, what's the relationship between the the inner and the outer, the private and the public, um, the emotional and the rational? Um, Mills doesn't live to see that, 
And had he seen that, he, he might have found Freudianism, which calls your attention inward, a little bit more interesting. So there's a big, big difference between something like symbolic interaction or, or like the popularity now of Bourdieu uh, within sociology, that if you, if you look at Freud, Freud starts from within, from oneself, and looks at one's own psyche. It's very, very introspective, obviously. That was the basis, as I say in that essay, of the general interpretation of dreams, was Freud's own dreams. And uh, until feminism and other um, questioning of methodologies starts to happen later, um, I think one... a, a, a um, a method that looks inward is not going to be so popular in sociology as it developed in America. You know, um, one thing that struck me with this um, particular book is that on the one hand, it's talking about something fairly specific um, about the relationship between psychoanalysis and sociology. But in that divorce, um, there are mentions of other divorces potentially that really in some ways the book is about this emerging hegemony of positivism that we're still wrestling with the fallout of uh, to this day. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that hegemony of uh, positivism and maybe even mention a few of the other divorces that may have taken place along the way? Mm. John, would you like to give that one a try? Um, sure. Um I think that, you know, even though there was this, you know, quote-unquote divorce, um, you still see references to Freud and psychoanalysis um, throughout the 60s, 70s, and up through today. I mean, Nancy Charo comes to mind, of course, but um, Louis Althusser in France was deeply influenced by Lacan, um, but to talk about the other kinds of divorces, I think that those um, really came about beginning with feminism, but also other kind of minoritarian um, perspectives, critical race theory, um, uh, queer theory, um, are all wrestling against positivism in different ways and also have at the same time a kind of vexed relationship with psychoanalysis. Yeah. So there's, I, I, the divorce is, is very muddled, I guess. Um, Lynn, do you, yeah, I mean that, do you agree that with that? But when you, when you're saying that when you were talking about the volume, the volume has um, various debates going on within the volume, which I, I found very mm. interesting in the course of editing it. And the subtitle, Diverse Perspectives on the Psychosocial, is, um, I think, a very, very accurate description of the book because what the, book, what the authors all have in common is, I think, a very strongly agreed upon um, sense that it, it's, it's just impossible to somehow 
underst- to understand the social without taking um, the internal and the external, the psychic and the cultural both into account. So everyone agrees on that, but then there's a tremendous amount of diversity in terms of how does one go about that. And so one debate, I don't know if, if I want to, would want to use the word divorce, but I think it's, there's lively debates going on in that book. So, for example, Neil Smelser, who you mentioned, I think, um, Jerry, in, in introducing the book, he has, um, I think, a wonderfully thorough, very systematic article about his, his own training as a psychoanalyst and his being a sociologist, but he comes up with a kind of limited view of where you can put the psycho and the social together. And then um, there's Siamak Movet. Excuse me? And, a, and, and pessimistic, too, I would say. Yeah, a, a little bit pessimistic. He doesn't rule it out altogether, but he gives it a, like, the, the areas where one can apply it, he finds very limited. And then C.M.F. Movetti has a, a very passionate, engaged essay where he's saying that the language of psychoanalysis and the language of sociology, that there are concepts that are kindred concepts that are being used all the time. So we could say that's a more optimistic view that of that um, ability to reconcile sociology and psychoanalysis. And then there's, you know, um, Neil McLaughlin, um, I think, is following a little bit on Smelser and saying, okay, let me give three examples of where you might be able to use this productively. And another wonderful essay, I think, in the book, um, it is um, Gilda Zwerman's essay where she called Personae based on the Bergman film where she talks about that there's always a, a, a inner psychoanalytic dimension to how one picks research topics, social, sociological topics. It's not this objective thing at all. Mm-hmm. So it's almost going back to Weber and, um, right. and, and developing that. And then John could talk about his essay where he uses foreclosures. Uh, uh, you know, various mm-hmm. people have essays where they take a term that's getting used in a, both a social and psychoanalytic way and elaborate that connection. Mm-hmm. So maybe, John, can you say something about that? Well, we're, yeah. we're wanna come, we want to definitely want to come back to that. Lynn, you're about, you're I about, have to, you have yeah, to go. To sign off, right? yeah. Um, there's, there's one other thing, kind of an aside, um, but I can't resist this. Alice and I read the book independently of, of each other, and then when we got together to talk about it, we both, we both, uh, almost the first thing that each of us said was that you, the book seems to do a psychoanalysis of sociology. Yeah. <laughs> we, we both had it in our notes, actually, yeah, uh, with question marks. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted before you go, Lynn, and then John can follow up too, but mm-hmm. to ask you what you think of that, what you make of uh, that. that observation. Yeah, it sort of echoes yeah. the old phrase, sociology of sociology, which yes, was yes, certainly yes, one of the radical sociology yeah. impetuses. Definitely. Yeah, what yeah. do you think? Well, it's an of, interesting, it's yeah. a in, very interesting observation, and at some level, I think there, there definitely is that dimension, and was for me, in that, um, um, I, I, 
love doing sociology, I love doing sociological theory, but as someone who's been in the field for 25, 30 years, something I find interesting is that if a student came up to me and asked me for five books of sociologists writing about their own dynamics in, as sociologists, um, it, there is very, very little of that that I'm aware mm. of. There, it's mm. not completely absent. But, you know, we study social groups, but not so much our own interactions with each other. Mm. Um, that's why I was, when I was talking about Mills and saying how Freud starts from within. So in some ways, you, you could, it, it would certainly make sense for sociologists to be studying each other. Mm -hmm. So then from that question, it comes, well, why is that? You know, and is there an unconsciousness about our own social processes? A, a collective unconscious. Yeah, collective unconscious. Uh, uh, as in sociology, a, the, a disciplinary uh, yes, so. a disciplinary unconscious. Exactly. And, uh, and, and what I was also just following up from that, that I find fascinating about that unconscious, you know, if you want to call it a sociological unconsciousness of itself, that um, what I, I continue to make this argument, at least is of interest to me, that I think that major, major theorists, Durkheim, Marx, and Weber, among them, all in some um, uh, part of their classical theoretical arguments are asserting unconscious group processes. Mm -hmm. So that they're, they are, t I mean, ideology for Marx, you're not conscious, right? The argument is you're not conscious of your actual quote-unquote interests. Um, and whatever one thinks about that claim, there still is a, an assertion of, of a collective kind of unconsciousness. Similarly, Durkheim writing about crime, Weber Absolutely. writing about the Protestant. So there is unconsciousness in sociology all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I'm I was at some level with John in this book attempting to bring that um, a kind of um, marginalized or repressed aspect of sociology more to the forefront. Hmm. Great. <laughs> Terrific. Interesting stuff. Okay. Okay, so very nice talking to you. Thank you so much for um, for having this discussion with us. Yes, well, thank you for taking the time. And, okay. Uh, and we'll continue on now with, with, with John. John. Right. Okay, <laughs> bye okay. now. Um, to follow up with what Lynn just said, sure. um, I think it's also noteworthy, I guess, that a number of the authors in the book are also trained as analysts. Yes, um, that's so, interesting. Uh, uh, including Catherine Silver, Smelzer, um, Jeff Prager. Yes. So, and a number of us have also been analysts. And so, um, I think that that personal experience informs how we do sociology as well. Mm -hmm. That uh, the sociologists who are trained um, as analysts. Those those whom I know are 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 older. Uh, some yeah. of them came into well, the discipline in the late fifties and in the sixties. Are there is there a younger generation of sociologists who have gone through um, a, a, a training? That's it's interesting. I mean, CMAC uh, Mohavedi um, is probably the youngest of the trained analysts, but not I, to my knowledge, um, I think you're correct that, that sociologists who end up 
doing training tend to do so later in life. Um, uh-huh. And, and I, I, I don't know, I know that for Catherine, um, I'll speak for her, uh, that it came out of um, a certain frustration um, in doing sociology and its uh, refusal to acknowledge, um, I guess, unconscious processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, John, let's get, let's get back to um, your chapter. It has a great title, Foreclosure <laughs> from Freud to Fannie Mae. And as the title suggests, it's not only uh, is Freud relevance, uh, relevant in uh, 21st century America, but there's um, this distinction of the, the term the Freudian use and the common use of the term foreclosure, mm-hmm. um, which is more in, in this day and age used to reference the housing loan crisis. Can you just give us a little bit of that back and forth distinction and what you were working with, with that term? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, well, one of the, before I answer that question, I'll say that um, a lot of, um, a lot of us are using these Freudian concepts, in non-psychoanalytic ways, like foreclosure. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, or melancholia, or, you know, um, uh, repression, uh, they become uh, sort of uh, hermeneutic, I guess, um, for interpreting um, social phenomenon that, that isn't quantifiable or, or that you couldn't necessarily observe. So... Um, what interested me about the the housing crisis um, was this phenomenon of um, former homeowners destroying their homes um, before they vacated the house, and and many to very very extreme um, <laughs> measures. You know, leaving ferrets, um, feces, ripping out um, moldings. So I asked, you know, what was going on in their minds when, when this happened, you know? And there's no way to go to trace these people. There's, you know, sociologically, um, all we have is the trace of the home itself. So to me, foreclosure um, was more of an interpretive device for, for thinking about inside and outside of the home, um, of the mind, um, and I think that others, um, like uh, Anthony Elliott, Jeff Prager, use melancholia um, maybe in similar kind of way. Well, what's the Freudian, the Freudian use of foreclosure? Well, Freud used the term. Uh, it's usually. Um, um, translated as repudiation, and it was Lacan who really um, uh, uh, developed that concept. And for Freud, repudiation or foreclosure um, dealt with aspects of the world um, that 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 the the psyche refuses to even. Um, acknowledge it, it's unbearable. Hmm. So um, it's foreclosed ideas or feelings are 
not repressed. They don't even enter consciousness. Um, so that to me was, it's rather unique in psychoanalysis because it's talking about a kind of radical exterior that, that's unaccountable or that we can't account for. Mm. The term denial comes comes to mind. Yeah, that, I think that that's that probably common, a common common expression. Denial, yeah. but even denial um, seems to suggest that at some level you you're aware of whatever it is that's being mm. denied. You know, like if you're an alcoholic who's in denial or sure. or whatever. So. Foreclosure um, is, is takes that um, to a you know I guess a, a it takes it further mm-hmm. and and then sort of coming back again to foreclosure the way we use it uh, in terms of the housing loan crisis is is it are are you meaning to say then that there are levels of of hostility that um that are that are there but that uh that kind of go unaccounted for well uh, i think historically but, yeah but that, that, that then come out in in the form of of the trashing of these houses yeah, yeah. um and i think that that the on the financial side it's um these predatory loans the subprime loans that that people who borrow aren't necessarily aware of what is happening behind the scenes when banks know, you know, lend the money knowing that they're going to fail because they're, you know, bundled together and securitized and sold to some other financial institution. You know, it's sort of a, a weird kind of almost Ponzi like scheme. So, um this is it's sort of an outside um that individual homeowners aren't aware of the 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 financial um uh you know underpinning of the the money that they've been uh loaned you know it brings me to uh, another i think related question which is by investigating these various psychoanalytical and particularly Freudian insights and, and terms. Um, is that investigation, do you think that might lead to um, ch- uh, social change strategy, strategy, different strategies or maybe even different policy decisions that um, vary from what we can currently have to engage uh, some of these issues today? Um, can you... Can you rephrase the question? Um, <laughs> sure. Does it does it kind of lead us into a new direction and just discovering new strategies to engage? Like if we understand, for example, that these these people, oh, you know, through the use of an understanding of the term foreclosure in this context, that there's something else going on. Do we then does it then reveal something new that we could then bring to bear that knowledge to kind of help our society kind of engage? Um, more directly and resolve some of these issues um, in a more creative way. Can, can I reword that even further? Sure. <laughs> what, what do we get out of a 
psychoanalytic-influenced sociology hmm. that we don't get out of the positivist kind of sociology that is dominant in America today. What difference would it make in terms of policy directions, strategies, and tactics, and so forth? Yeah, I think that what you get is um, is depth. You know, uh, the polling people, um, you're only going to, you're, you're limiting them to certain sort of preordained yes or no kind of questions. And psychoanalysis is about depth. It's about interiority. So if, you know, we can understand motivation, which is sort of the core of, of what, Freud was investigating in the unconscious what motivates us, um, then we can better understand things like um, uh, violence, terrorism, religious extremism, you know, the, the things that, that are, are maybe troubling to us, gun uh, violence, um, racism. So... Um, or or things yeah, I, or or uh, apathy and passivity, perhaps. Yeah, I mean that apathy and passivity. Um, you know, I think that as Lynn pointed out, we there's there's certain ideological forces that um, that that um, keep us in the status quo. We you know so. We believe in the system. We believe mm-hmm. in the state um, or the family. You know that that these are are natural um, sort of institutions. So um, I think in that sense, psychoanalysis is very um, germane to to understanding ideology, um, which, as we know, is you know. In this day and age, you know, you have national, uh, increasing nationalisms, um, um, extremisms of different sorts, but also, like you pointed out, kind of a, a belief that the world is as it is. And, you know, so if we, if we understand the basis of ideology, then we can also understand how to uh, motivate change. Mm-hmm. What about your students? How do they approach these ideas? Are they fairly open to kind of Freudian concepts and psychoanalytic ideas, or are they resistant? Um, I have found that they are surprisingly very open. I mean, I I think it's um, at first sort of shocking in a way to them, um, particularly the the sexuality aspect, Um, but they're very open to it. At the same time, I would say um, they don't quite know what to do with it either. So they have difficulty writing about um, about Freud and, and the unconscious, and that may have to do with you know a certain level of world experience or, or maturity. You know sure. that that you know most you know college students have just left. The, the the family, which is of course you know for Freud the the basis of psychic formation is 
you know, identification with the mother and the father and so forth. Do you teach a course on on Freudian theory in society? I actually, I, I haven't, but I, I include Freud in my classical sociological theory, which... Mm-hmm. Um, but Good for you. <laughs> fortunately, um, they let me do that, and so we, you know, we do the Marx, Weber, Durkheim, but we also do Mead. I, actually, we read Mead and Freud side by side mm-hmm. because I think Mead, as Lynn pointed out, um, was sort of. Uh, of course, he doesn't acknowledge Freud, and, and was maybe a precursor to. Um, or, or wasn't aware necessarily, but um, there's a lot of um, resonance, I guess, between the two uh, theories of the self. Have you had enough time yet to have feedback on the book uh, or conversations, interviews, you know, Not re- so reviews much, you like know. this to know, is there a pushback against your ideas? Is there any sense that the discipline is threatened by a resurgence of, of Freudian influence? Um, I, I have not um, mm-hmm. heard feedback yet. Um, the book wasn't out um, at ASA in August, so we may hear something this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Might be a picket line at the booth. I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, psychoanalysis and psychosocial approaches um, have made a, a big resurgence in the UK. Mm. And there's even mm. a, a section for the psychosocial. They call it a stream, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I somehow I don't think that the sociological establishment, if you want to call it that, is going to be too threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will be of interest to um, to sociologists and students who are already maybe interested in Freud. Um, and what about um, students that actually become interested in um, these Freudian ideas uh, mixed with uh, um, soci- their sociological training or background? Are there programs, graduate programs, that they uh, might be interested in um, becoming a part of? Are there any that you've identified that seem to have a strong... Freudian influence? Well, um, the Graduate Center where I got my PhD um, was was one such place um, with Lynn, um, Stanley Aronowitz, and Patricia Clough, and Catherine Silver, all uh, very well-versed in psychoanalysis. I would, you know, if I had a student who's interested in, in pursuing that kind of approach, I would probably steer them to um, American studies or some sort of interdisciplinary field, hmm. because I don't think that I, I, I don't think that they will find um, a very receptive, um, uh, you know, audience hmm. in theology, yeah. at least for graduate school. Certainly. Okay, John. Um, Let's let's wrap it up with that. Okay, and, thank you um, so much. For sure. Well, us. thanks for uh, uh, for the time that you and Lynn have given us. Again, just a reminder to listeners that we've been talking to Lynn Chancer and John Andrews about their new book, 
The Unhappy Divorce of Sociology and Psychoanalysis, a new book from Paul Grave McMillan. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Good talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.